Section 46 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 6 The Interior of an Abyss Illuminated. When this man found himself on that rock, beneath that cloud, in the midst of that water, far from all human contact, left for dead, alone between the rising sea and the approaching night, he felt a profound satisfaction. He had succeeded. He had realized his dream. The bill of exchange at long date, which he had drawn upon destiny, had been paid over to him. For him abandonment meant deliverance. He was on the handway, a mile from land. He had seventy-five thousand francs. Never had a more clever shipwreck been accomplished. Nothing had gone wrong. It is true that everything had been foreseen. Clubin, from his youth up, had cherished one idea, to put honesty as his stake on the gambling table of life, to pass for an upright man, and, starting from that point to await his chance, let the stakes swell, hit on the best way, divine the moment, not to grope, but to seize, to make one blow and only one, to end by a sweepstake, to leave imbeciles behind him. His intention was to succeed once where stupid sharpers fail twenty times in succession, and while they end up on the gallows, to end in a fortune himself. Rantaine, once met, had been his illuminating flash. He had immediately mapped out his plan, to force Rantaine to disgorge to render the latter's possible revelations null and void by disappearing, to pass for dead, the best of all ways of disappearing. To that end was to wreck the Durande. This wreck was necessary. Moreover, to go away, leaving a good reputation behind him at his departure, which rendered his whole existence a masterpiece. Anyone who had seen Clubin amid this shipwreck would have thought he beheld a demon, and a happy one. He had lived all his life for that moment. His whole person expressed these words, at last. A frightful serenity rendered that obscure brow pallid. His dull eye, whose depths seemed to be impenetrable, became clear and terrible. The inward fires of that soul were reflected there. The interior tribunal has its electric phenomena, like external nature. An idea is a meteor. At the moment of success the accumulated meditations which have preceded it yawn, and a spark flashes forth from it. To possess within oneself the talons of evil, and to feel one's prey therein, is a happiness which has a radiance of its own. An evil thought triumphing illuminates the face. Certain combinations which have been successful certain objects attained, certain fierce felicities cause lugubrious expansions of light to appear and disappear in the eyes of men. It is a joyful storm, it is a menacing dawn, it proceeds from the conscience which has become a shadow and a cloud. It lighted up the eyes of this man. This lightning resembled nothing which is to be seen flashing on high or here below. The repressed rascality which existed in Clubin was breaking forth. 
Trubin gazed at the immense obscurity, and could not restrain a burst of low and sinister laughter. He was free. He was rich. His unknown had freed itself at last. He had solved his problem. Clubin had plenty of time before him. The sea was rising, and consequently it upheld the Durande, which it would finally lift. The vessel remained firmly on the reef. There was no danger of her floundering. Moreover, he must allow the longboat time to get away, to be lost, perhaps. Clubin hoped so. Erect on the shipwrecked Durande, he folded his arms, enjoying this abandonment in the dark. Hypocrisy had weighed upon this man for thirty years. He was evil, and had coupled himself with probity. He hated probity with the hatred of a man unhappily mated. He had always cherished a rascally intention. Since he had attained the age of manhood, he had worn the rigid armor of appearances. Beneath he was a monster. He lived in the skin of an honest man with the heart of a bandit. He was a fair-spoken pirate. He was the prisoner of honesty. He was shut up in the mummy-case of innocence. He had worn the wings of an angel, which are so wearisome to a scoundrel. He was overburdened with public esteem. It is hard to pass for an honest man, to think evil and to speak well, and to keep all these in equilibrium. He had been the phantom of uprightness, while he was the specter of crime. This contradiction had been his fate. He had been obliged to assume a plausible countenance, to remain always presentable, to froth in secret, to smile instead of gnashing his teeth. Virtue was for him a stifling thing. He had passed his life in a desire to bite the hand which was laid upon his mouth. But, while wishing to bite it, he had been obliged to kiss it. To have lied is to have suffered. A hypocrite is a patient in the double acceptation of the word. He calculates a triumph and undergoes a torture. The indefinite premeditating on an evil deed, accompanied by and dosed with austerity, inward infamy seasoned with an excellent reputation, the constant putting of people on the wrong scent, never being oneself, creating an illusion, is fatiguing. To produce candor out of all the black stuff which one grinds over in his brain, to desire to devour those who venerate you, to be caressing, to hold yourself in, to repress yourself, to be always on the alert, to watch yourself incessantly, to put a fair face on your latent crime, to make your deformity appear beautiful, to fabricate a perfection out of your wickedness, to tickle with the dagger, to put sugar in the poison, to keep a guard over your gestures and over the music of your voice, not to wear your own look. Nothing is more difficult, nothing is more torturing. The odiousness of hypocrisy is obscurely felt by the hypocrite. It is nauseating to drink one's own imposture continually. The sweetness communicated by craft to wickedness disgusts the wicked man, forced to have this mixture constantly in his mouth, and there are moments of upheaval 
when hypocrisy is on the point of vomiting forth its secret thought. To be obliged to swallow down that saliva again is horrible. Add to this deep-seated pride. There are strange moments when the hypocrite esteems himself. There is a huge eye in the scoundrel. The worm crawls in the same manner as the dragon, and has the same manner of rearing to strike. The traitor is only the despot under constraint, who cannot accomplish his will otherwise than by resigning himself to a secondary part. It is littleness capable of enormity. The hypocrite is a dwarfed titan. Clubin imagined, in good faith, that he had been ill-used. By what right had not he been born rich? He would have asked no better than to have inherited a hundred thousand livres income from his father and mother. Why had he not inherited it? It was no fault of his. Why had he been deprived of all the enjoyments of life, and forced to toil, that is to say, to deceive, to betray, to destroy? Why, by this means, had they condemned him to this torture of flattering, of crawling, of humoring, of making himself beloved and respected, and of wearing, night and day, another face than his own? To dissimulate is a violence restrained. One hates the person to whom one lies. At last the hour had struck. Clubin was taking his revenge. On whom? On all, and for everything. The Thierry had done him nothing but good, a grievance the more. He was avenging himself on Le Thierry. He was taking his revenge on all those before whom he had restrained himself. He was taking his revenge. Whoever had thought well of him was his enemy. He had been the captive of that man. Clubin was at liberty. His exit was made. He stood outside of men. What they took for his death was his life. It was about to begin. The true Clubin had stripped off the false Clubin. With one blow he had broken every tie. He had kicked Rantaine into space, Letierie into ruin, human justice into the darkness, opinion into error, all humanity away from himself. He had just eliminated the world. As for God, that word of three letters troubled him but little. He had passed for a religious man. Well, what next? There are caverns in the hypocrite, or, to speak more truly, the entire hypocrite is a cavern. When Clubin found himself alone, his cavern opened. Then came a moment of delight for him. He aired his soul. He breathed in his crime to the full extent of his lungs. The very depths of evil were manifested in that visage. Clubin blossomed out. At that moment, Rantaine's look, compared to his, would have seemed like that of a newborn infant. What a deliverance was that rending away of the mask! His conscience rejoiced at beholding itself hideously naked, and taking without restraint its ignoble bath in evil. The long constraint of human respect ends by inspiring a mad taste for indecency. One comes to a certain lascivious enjoyment in crime. 
there exists in these frightful moral abysses so seldom sounded an atrocious and strangely fascinating revelation which is the obscenity of crime the insipidity of false good repute awakens an appetite for shame they disdain men so much that they would like to be despised by them they become weary of being esteemed they admire the first jostling of degradation they gaze enviously at turpitude which is so much at ease in ignominy eyes lowered under obligation often have these stealthy glances nothing is nearer messalina than marie alacotte look at la cadière and at the nun of louvière clubin also had lived under the veil effrontery had always been his ambition he envied the prostitute and the brazen front of accepted opprobrium he felt himself more of an outcast than she and had a disgust for passing as immaculate he had been the tantalus of cynicism at last on this rock in this solitude he could be frank and he was what voluptuousness to feel himself sincerely abominable all the ecstasies possible to hell clubin experienced at that moment the arrearages of dissimulation had been paid over to him hypocrisy is an advance payment satan had reimbursed it clubin indulged himself in the intoxication of being shameless since men had disappeared and there was nothing but heaven left he said to himself i am a scoundrel and he was satisfied nothing like it had ever taken place in a human conscience the eruption of a hypocrite no outbreak of a crater is comparable to that he was delighted that no one was there and yet he would not have been displeased if someone had been there he would have rejoiced in being monstrous before a witness he would have been happy to tell the human race to its face you are an idiot the absence of men assured his triumph but diminished it he had only himself as a spectator of his glory being in the pillory has a certain charm of its own all the world knows that you are infamous to force the crowd to look at you is to exercise an act of power a convict standing on a platform in a public square with an iron collar about his neck is the despot of all the looks which he forces to turn towards him there is a pedestal on yonder scaffold what finer triumph than to be the center of universal attention to force the public eye to look is one of the forms of supremacy to those to whom evil is the ideal opprobrium is an aureole from that point they dominate they are on top of something they display themselves in sovereign fashion a post which the universe beholds is not without some analogy to a throne to be exposed is to be contemplated an evil reign has evidently some of the joys of the pillory nero burning rome louis the fourteenth treacherously seizing the palatinate the regent george slowly killing napoleon nicholas assassinating poland in the face of civilization must have felt something of the voluptuousness which clubin now experienced something like grandeur is felt by the one who is made the subject of immense execration to be unmasked 
is a defeat, but to unmask oneself is a victory. It is like intoxication. It is like insolent and satisfied impudence. It is a flaunting nakedness which insults everything before it. Supreme happiness. These ideas seem a contradiction in a hypocrite, and are not. All infamy is consistent. Honey is gall. Escobar borders on the Marquis de Sade. Proof? Leotard. The hypocrite, being wickedness complete, has within him the two poles of perversity. He is priest on one side and courtesan on the other. His demoniacal sex is double. The hypocrite is the frightful hermaphrodite of evil. He fructifies himself. He engenders and transforms himself. If you desire him charming, look at him. If you desire him horrible, turn him around. Clubin had within him that complete gloom of confused ideas. He did not perceive them clearly, but he enjoyed them greatly. A passage of sparks from hell which one might behold at night, such was the succession of thoughts in his soul. Clubin remained in this thoughtful state for some time. He was gazing upon his cast-off honesty with a look which the serpent bestows upon his old skin. All the world had believed in that honesty, even he himself, to a small extent. He burst into a second fit of laughter. They were going to believe that he was dead and he was rich. They were going to believe that he was lost and he was saved. What a fine trick played on universal stupidity! and in that universal stupidity Rantaine was included. Clubin thought of Rantaine with boundless disdain, the disdain of the weasel for the tiger. That trick in which Rantaine had failed had succeeded with him. Rantaine had gone off, and Clubin was disappearing triumphant. He had substituted himself for Rantaine in the bed of his evil deed, and it was he, Clubin, who had won the price. As for the future, he had no well-settled plan of action. He had his three banknotes in the iron box enclosed in his girdle. That certainty was sufficient for him. He would change his name. There are countries where sixty thousand francs are worth six hundred thousand. It would not be a bad plan to go and live honestly in one of those nooks on the money recaptured from that thief of a rantin to speculate, to enter into business on a grand scale, to increase his capital, to become in serious earnest a millionaire, that would not be a bad thing either. At Costa Rica, for example, there were tons of money to be made, as the great trade in coffee was now beginning to be developed. He would see about it. It mattered little, however. There was time to think on the subject. For the moment, the difficult part was accomplished. To despoil Rantaine, to disappear with the Durande, that was the great matter. It was accomplished. The rest was simple. No obstacle was henceforth possible. Nothing to fear, nothing could arise. He was about to swim ashore at night. He would reach Plémont. He would climb the cliff. He would go straight to the haunted house. He would enter it without difficulty by means of his knotted rope 
concealed beforehand in a hole in the rock. He would find in the empty house his valise containing dry clothing and food, and there he would wait. He was resigned to that. A week would not elapse without the Spanish smugglers, Blasquito probably, touching at Plémont, for a few guineas he would get himself transported, not to Torbay, as he had said to Blasco, to throw conjecture off the track and put it on the wrong scent, but to Passage or Bilboa. Thence he would reach Veracruz or New Orleans. However, the time had come to throw himself into the sea. The launch was far away. An hour's swim was nothing to Clubin. Only a mile separated him from the land, since he was on the handways. At this point in Clubin's reverie there came an opening in the fog. The formidable Douvre rock made its appearance. End of chapter 6 The Interior of an Abyss Illuminated